And just typically, just, um, just because Africans think so holistically, uh, it is more than just a food, right? There are medicinal dimensions to it and there are spiritual dimensions to it. Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director at Sankofa Community Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. It's a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to food sovereignty, cultural preservation, and sustainable agriculture. This episode is going to be a jam-packed episode all about malachia. Um, and before we uh, talk about Molokia, then I think we should um, honor during this time of viral plague with the coronavirus. Just take a moment to remember all of the people who first who have died uh, as a result of this horrible epidemic. But then also all of uh, us who are still living and, and, and trying to work through, you know, this this situation to its end. So uh, for the health and um uh, healing of all peoples and that we all will be safe and extra careful uh, out of love for all of the people. I want to read a couple of words from Psalm 91. You need not fear the terrors of night, the arrow that flies in the daytime, the plague that stalks in the dark, the scourge that wreaks havoc in broad daylight. Though a thousand fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, you yourself will remain unscathed with God's faithfulness for shield. And buckler. Thank you. We're here in the house and haven't been out much because of all of the social isolation. And um, we just ate a big meal filled with foods that we've grown over the last year, including some greens, including seven different greens that Chris cooked. Um, could you tell us what greens were in there? You know, I, I'll try to remember. I know I put uh, collard greens. This is all from our field at uh, Sankofa Farm in Bartram's Garden. Um, there was some turnip greens, rather. Uh, and there was mustard. There was some collards, I think. Uh, I had kale, lacinato kale. What else do we have? There was uh, wild cress. Wild cress. There was some um, chickweed. There was chickweed. And there was green onion. Yep, which is a green and a leaf in this considered um a green um in southern cooking yeah and we kind of almost stewed the greens i mean the way they were cooked they, they were they were almost the consistency of malachia well, i mean, I, mean I, I cooked it west african style these are these, these are greens that are usually used in southern and especially african-american southern uh cooking you know we eat greens every week uh in the south as i grew up we ate some greens every week, and of course, uh, in Mississippi, that would be usually 
turnip greens uh, as the sort of mother green of the pot with other, or, or, you know, some other greens added to it, generally mustard, because that's what most folks had growing up to, on the side of their house. So, um, yeah, we, we I cook it, you know, even though those are traditionally African-American, uh, you know, sort of greens have become so. I cooked in the Af- in the West African style with uh, lots of palm oil, red oil, and onions and and peppers and and lots of seasonings. Good, uh, you know, there was some suya powder, smoked paprika to give it a really good smoky, and of course we 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 added our mushrooms uh, from the field where we are also growing some shiitakes, oysters, kings, trumpets, chestnut, all sorts of um, mushrooms. And all of them went in the pot with that, and we definitely slow cooked and sort of braised the greens for hours uh, with a little bit of water. And uh, and our favorite a staple in our house, which is veggie broth, veggie broth bouillon, veggie broth cubes, all of it. It's awesome. It replaces magic for um, vegetarian cooking. We also just had our first skirret of the year, the sweet root. Really, it's a East Asian species but it's been grown in in my ancestral and our ancestral european kind of northern european um homelands since the middle ages and it's this carrot family root that has all these little white thin roots that are so sweet and in fact skirret i think is dutch for sweet root and we had uh hop and john as well but anyway the greens are timely because this whole episode is about how lots of different people cook malachia greens and we've been it's new to us these greens um there's so many names for it as you'll hear throughout this episode from malachia and different forms of that arabic word to jute which is what people often call it when it's used as a fiber like our jute rug downstairs um egyptian spinach you know kind of a nod to where one of the places of origin is saluyot, uwedu, uh, raudai, juz malo, lalo. It's got a lot of names, and I'm sure there's a lot more than this. Yeah, we're we're new to malachia. I've probably first grew it five or six years ago at Roughwood Seed Collection, but didn't really really know it until I learned about it from one of the people you hear from today, Mason from Bare Bottom Farm and his Syrian grandfather who who grew malachia. And it's a delicious green. We, we have it in our freezer now. Um, it didn't make it into our seven greens tonight, but it's something that we love to eat. We both grow it on our farms. It's a very almost wild plant. Um, it's a very tall mallow um, in the Malvaceae family, um, you know, with okra and marshmallow and cotton. Um, do you have anything you want to add about Malachia? We're going to hear a lot from people in the episode, but what are your thoughts? Well, um, I mean, I, I like, I mean, as you were saying, Malachia is new to me as of probably maybe the last what, six, seven years. The way I think I, that I've learned more about it is in African cooking and West African cooking, particularly that that's, that, you know, is uh, sort of the stream through which it came um, to me. And I love it. I cook it. I don't cook it very often because I think to do it justice, you have to cook it down a long time. So it's an old school green that you have to boil down, but with lots of seasoning. But it makes this delicious, velvety, earthy, and and full-bodied 
sort of stew that you just sort of bathe, you know, your senses in when you when you eat it. And so it definitely is a food that that feels like it can bring you back to life. And I, just for its healing properties as well, too, you know, that it's a green that's eaten. I know people eat it for medicine, particularly healing the intestinal tract and inflammation. It's an awesome anti-inflammatory, just eating it, making a tea of it. So um, I'm very excited to know it and um, always uh, want to support people who want to spread more greens in the world because I think we're going to be needing that more and more, you know. I mean, in this age of plague, you know, so many of us are running for what's the right tincture, what's the right root, what's the right leaf. But a lifestyle of health is really what I think is is the most preventative, you know, and, and preservative uh, practice, you know, for our bodies and our souls. And uh, it, it seems like this monologia, um could really contribute to, to that, to this beautiful lifestyle of, uh, of good health because it's easy to eat. Yeah, I love it. But you don't have to take our word for it. We're going to hear from old friends and new friends from Nigeria, Haiti, the Philippines, Syria, Palestine, and Vietnam in this episode, all talking about their love for this plant. And we're going to start with a friend of ours named Londin, who interviews her mother, and it's a very beautiful, short interview. And uh, we just thought it would be a beautiful way to start. And we're going to go through many short interviews and um, voice recordings that were sent to us um, before landing on a couple longer ones from a Syrian-American farmer and a Palestinian chef. Um, so, yeah, we're going to start here with Lan Din, who is a real, real dear friend of ours. She grows with her Resilient Roots farm in Camden, New Jersey. She grows seeds for the True Love Seeds catalog, including... Um, Rao Den, the, the Vietnamese amaranth, bitter melon. You want to introduce Lan too? Oh, well, I mean, you know, Lan, I can't add much more to what you said. You know, Lan is a dear sister in the work. I count her, you know, part of this sort of um, band of new newborn culture keepers, you know, culture restorers. We're all doing our work, you know, with our people and, and with the world and, you know, sort of connecting diasporas is what Hayes is what I think a lot about a certain aspect of her work. Her, I mean, her work is geared towards her people, as it should be, and in really powerful ways and doing some awesome things. Um, but I think that, you know, connecting diasporas, which is so much the goal of this show, is really reflective of Sister Lon's life and her work. Um, and, um, yeah, Rode is very delicious. And I'm excited to hear Lon and her mom talk about it. Okay, without further ado, here's Lon from Viet Lead and Resilient Roots Farm interviewing her mother. Hi, Owen and Chris. This is Lon. Today I am sitting down with my mom, and we are going to talk about uh, Molokia and um, our experiences with it. My mom's name is Sai Jin. Hi. Um, so I'm going to ask my mom. Ma có thể kể sao mà ma biết cái cây này không? So mom, how do you know about this plant? À, còn uh, ngày còn kỳ còn bé, mẹ cứ nấu cái này cho ăn này. 
So when I was young, I remember my mom would cook this. She would cook it, cut it up really small, and then she would boil it up like other vegetables, and then it would become this stew, and we would eat it. What do you call this plant? What is Rodai known for? When you cook it, it gets really slimy, and then when you eat it, it's, it, it can really cool you down, and it's really easy to digest. So, Mom, how do you grow it? So you clear the soil, cultivate the soil, prepare it to direct seed onto the soil. So you can just kind of throw the seeds onto the soil, water it in. It, it will take probably about a week to come up. And then after about maybe a month, it'll get about maybe like a foot tall. And that's when you can start pruning. And as much as you prune, the more bushy it will get. You don't want it to grow straight up. You want to keep pruning it. And um, you can, you know, water and fertilize as needed. And this plant doesn't need that much water. So when you're planting, plant it far apart, about a foot apart. If you plant it too close, it'll get old more quickly. And it will make it easier for you to prune and for it to bush out. Yeah, So how did you get the seeds? So a long time ago when we came to Vietnam, when it was easier to bring seeds over, because now it's a lot harder, but um, I asked my sister, and my sister gave it to us. So the uh, back then, it was really hard to find it here. And when you found it in a supermarket, it was really expensive. So it was really great to be able to um, plant it so then we'd be able to eat so we could like make soup and stews from it. So it's really convenient to eat. So anytime you have like chicken broth or just like chicken or meat, you can make like a, a quick soup and broth with it. So why this is an important food is, is um, you know, this is a, like a staple food for northern Vietnamese folks. Uh, this and, and amaranth and Thai eggplant is kind of like the quintessential northern Viet food. So like on a typical day for dinner, you would have a bowl of amaranth or malakia soup and Thai eggplant. So mom, how does it feel to be able to grow a rau dai here? I'm so happy to have been able to save these seeds for so many years. A few months ago, I was even able to send it to my nephew and brother who live in Des Moines, Iowa. 
And they were so shocked. They were like, Where, how were you able to get these seeds? These seeds are so good. And, and I told them since the last time that I visited that I had found those seeds and had been growing them every year, just a little, little. And then now I was able to share it back with them. It is a piece of Vietnam, a piece of our homeland. Cái nói là gì kỳ gì về Việt Nam á, gì kiếm được á, xong rồi gì giữ tới bây giờ á, cho nên bây giờ gì cứ giữ tới bây giờ gì cứ trồng trồng mỗi năm mỗi năm gì trồng ít dùng ít để ăn vậy cho nó có một cái hương vị của Việt Nam mình. After Lon sent these initial recordings with her mother, she had some reflections about the meaning of all this um, and these seed sharing circles in her family. So here you go. I had always grown up eating rodai, and I never really knew the story behind it until my mom recently shared more about it. And I think something that really stood out to me in the story was that she had actually gotten these seeds from her sister in Vietnam when my mom visited 10 years ago. And then recently when my aunt came over to the U.S. about two years ago, my mom was able to send her those seeds. And, you know, my aunt was shocked about where my mom got the seeds. And my mom reminded her that those are the same seeds that my aunt had given her 10 years ago. And now they're both growing it out. And like just how much joy that being able to grow this seed out has brought to my mom and her family and how it's helped both of them to feel more connected to home. The next interview here is with Chef Chris Paul. He was one of the chefs featured earlier this week at the Free Library of Philadelphia's event at the Cobbs Creek branch in West Philly called One Book, Many Voices Community Dinner. We had met several years ago um, at a seed swap at the Free Library, and we just reconnected when I ran into him this week. And he is going to tell us here all about Lalo. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Paul. I'm a chef. My family's from Haiti. I grew up in the U.S. more or less. I've been in Philadelphia for about 20 years in the hospitality industry. Graduated from Drexel, had a restaurant in West Philly, and now I'm uh, kind of a sabbatical, doing hanging out, doing some uh, some programs here and there at the Free Library. Nice. You just told me a little bit about your connection to Lalo, which we call Malachia or Jews Malo or Jute. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your family's experience with that plant? Yeah, so Lalo in, in Haiti, we we usually make it in the form of a legume. So more or less, um, I know my grandmother's side, she's from uh, Penye, Haiti, which is more of a province. And there, you know, legumes are very part of an everyday meal. Whereas, you know, nowadays it's, it's such a tedious process that I think people make it less and less. Especially, you know, being in the U.S., I might... I might only make it like two, three times a year. My mom is in Canada. She might make it like every now and then. But growing up, we used to have it almost weekly. And uh, my favorite variation is with blue crabs. So we actually make the legume and then we cook the crabs in it. And, uh, you know, it's just like the crabs you have here. So you have to, it's kind of a, a really messy, you go into it, you break it down, chew it up. And it's, uh, I just remember it being being very, like, you know, kind of like that okra texture. As you mentioned, as it cooks down, it's very dark green. Yeah, so we grew up eating that almost once a week, like on Sundays preferably, uh, every now and then, yeah. And what do you mean by make a legume? So what we call a legume is is more of a process rather than 
like peanuts are a legume and we think of it as a category but in in haitian you know maybe slash french cuisine legume is a process of cooking down greens uh other including other greens such as the chayote squash so we have some of that in there we call that berigen you would have that sometimes spinach uh pretty much anything green it's usually a combination of three four leaves that you're sauteing with onions garlic and then you really almost stew and pressure cook using one of those like traditional like iron pots and it's a, it's a long tedious process so you know you're picking leaves you're picking stems and uh I would say usually it takes a few hours, like three, even four hours. The longer, the merrier. Uh, so it's really like a thing where Sunday morning before church, my grandma preps everything. And then, you know, when you come back from church one, two o'clock, it's like, oh, it's ready. So, yeah, it's a long process. Do you remember seeing it growing or did it just kind of appear in the kitchen? Yeah, we never, you know, although my grandmother grew a lot of things, we never grew that per se. Uh, but I've seen it raw, you know, so I've seen the leaves come in, but I've never harvested it. You know, I know... Uh, as you mentioned, there are some, not fake, but things that cook like it, like taro root. Uh, and even like the wild spinach sometimes, if uh, you could cook it down like a legume, and you get a good consistency. But lalo is sort of like, it's a, it's a delicacy, I would say. I think people, like if you bought lalo to someone here that has been in Haiti, they, they'll go crazy. Like, oh my God, where'd you get this? So it's definitely a delicacy. Cool. And one last question about the, the recipes is in the process, is the leaf whole? Is it chopped? How, how finely chopped is it? Do you remember that part? Yeah. So the leaf would be roughly chopped. Yeah, it would be roughly chopped. Uh, I mean, the great thing about Caribbean cooking is like we don't really we never really had cutting boards. You know, it was just kind of like you're just cutting with your hand. So, you know, usually my grandma just sit in front of a bowl and she's just kind of nodding and cutting. And even for the most part ripping you know so it's very rough because at the end of the day two three hours later it's sort of all gonna come back and you know you're really chopping it to infuse the flavors but if you were to not chop it you probably could just steam it up and it'll break up eventually yeah awesome thank you so much for sharing that do you have a way people can follow what you're doing yeah definitely so you can follow me on instagram at chris ball chef as i said i'm uh, coming off sort of a sabbatical so i don't have any projects per se uh but i have i do have some things in the works with the free library other uh, programming uh maybe some collaborative dinners and uh you know maybe i might start a farm soon that's something in the back of my mind so we'll see but chris paul chef on instagram that's awesome thank you so much for sharing cool you're welcome take care this next interview is in a crowded kind of loud space at the free library central branch down in center city philadelphia it's with a man named nick who came to a a seed swap that we were putting on you know i put on seed swaps through philadelphia seed exchange in partnership with the library and so nick was there he's um you know older filipino man who came looking specifically for malachia and moringa seeds and luckily he found both at the seed swap and he talked a little bit about his relationship to Malachia. So here we go. I guess one other thing I should say is that <clears throat> I'm really new still to podcasting and voice recording and I plugged the mic into the wrong jack and so instead of the, this nice mic in front of his face the built-in mic um, on my recorder is what picked us up so it's particularly loud um, but I think you can hear it just fine. The second part of the interview is through this mic. Uh, this one is commonly called in the Philippines Saluyot. The scientific name is Corcorus oblitorius 
it is commonly known as juice mallow, but in Arabic it is commonly known as mulukia. As a side note, this is well known in the Middle East, and a lot of people know that this is the food that Cleopatra in ancient Egypt eats. Mm-hmm. So that be, that might be a, a good incentive for people to try this. This is slimy. Mm-hmm. So it takes, uh, there is a saying, uh, it takes a while for you to get used to the taste. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. How do you prepare saluyo in the Philippines? It is usually prepared like a stew. It could be with a fish, it could be with meat. Can you say your name again? Nick. My name is Nick without the saint. <laughs> Thank you. And what part of the Philippines are you from? Capital region. Where do these plants grow in the Philippines? Almost everywhere. Because in the Philippines, they do, we don't have um, four seasons, only dry and wet. Okay, and can you say one more time the names of each of these in your language? Moringa oliviera is known as malungay, and Corcorus olitorius is known in English as juice mallow, but locally it is called saluyo. Thank you so much. These next voice recordings come from our friend Ruby Olisemeka. And I first met Ruby many years ago leading a farm school New York City training of trainers course, which is a class on popular education for farmers. And now Ruby's a farm school NYC instructor herself, which is so awesome. Um, I just love farm school and the connections through that organization. Here she will talk about West African and specifically Yoruba uses of Malachia, a.k.a. Ewelu. Hey, Chris and Owen. This is Farmer Ruby. Thank you for having me on your incredible and very, very necessary podcast, Seeds and Their People. I'm so happy to join you in the conversation about Egyptian spinach. And um, in West Africa, we call it Ewedu. Uh, I think I first had it when I was in boarding school in Shagamu Ogun State. And that's a Yoruba state in Nigeria. And I've loved it ever since. Uh, in Nigeria, Awedu is typically eaten by Yoruba people and is interestingly eaten in a very specific type of way. Awedu um, or Egyptian spinach is usually combined with locust beans. Uh, we call that iru. And sometimes it's combined with uh, egusi, that's uh, melon seeds, ground up melon seeds. And usually ewedu mixed with egusi is given to women after having, uh, after going through childbirth to kind of give them, you know, strengthen their bodies up again and help them, produ- uh, help them to produce milk. Now, Ewedu, again, it's really specific how it's eaten. It's just not eaten with any anything. Um, Ewedu is typically eaten with something called amala. And amala is literally dried uh, African yam flour. And um, the flour looks 
kind of like a a grayish color it's like a grayish color and when you mix that up with hot water you cook it on the stove you get this dark brown very dark brown doughy food that's eaten alongside with uh, we do that's a mela and it's delicious i mean it's to many it's an acquired taste i particularly love it and I have a way to do my freezer as we speak. Um, my friend, farmer Brendan Parker from Red Hook Farms. I got some from him last summer. And it's I got a ton of a way to do from him last summer. And I think I have one bag left in my freezer. Um, I'm going to make some tonight. Uh, my aunt gifted me a bag of amala flour uh, from my last trip to Nigeria amazing um it's it's just so delicious and so filling and just typically just um just because africans think so holistically uh it is more than just a food right there are medicinal dimensions to it and there are spiritual dimensions to it I have a, a teacher, his name is Oriade uh, Iposola Ajitelu. I probably butchered his name, pardon me. <laughs> but he's a phenomenal spiritualist and has um, really deep insight into how uh, the indigenous Yoruba people uh, view Ewedu. Uh, Again, it's more than a food, it's a medicine. Um, you know, Oriade teaches me that um, it's used to enhance digestive function. So drinking the juices of it will, you know, alleviate stomach pains. Uh, eating it raw can alleviate constipation. Uh, there are like a number of spiritual recipes that you can prepare, you, you know, you can use, um, you can prepare with Awedu. Uh One of them is a recipe for fighting spiritual attacks. Um, another recipe is to attract blessings into your life. One is for spiritual defense, right? And um, there's another for attracting both physical and spiritual love. Let's see if I have a recipe to share. Here's one that's really good. So you get some awedu leaf. You boil it inside a big pot with enough water, right? You add a little bit of salt. And if you identify as female, you add seven white stones to the pot. If you identify as male, you add nine uh, white stones to the pot. And you add one alligator pepper. You cover the pot. And this is supposed to attract blessings into your household and also serve as a defense for any sort of like spiritual attack on your home. Um, another really interesting recipe, spiritual recipe uh, using a way do is that you burn it. Uh, you burn it alongside um, alligator pepper and then you take that ash and you combine it with soap, uh, maybe some honey and palm oil and that soap is used to um, as medicine or attraction for physical and spiritual love. And again, these are recipes that 
uh, Oriade has. And I encourage people to reach out to him if they want to learn more about um, the various indigenous uses of Ewedu. So Ruby shared with us contact information for her teacher, and we're going to put it in the show notes. Um, So this is your notice that we have show notes. And I always forget to mention it, but if you go check out the kind of information on this podcast, either on our website or I think also on all of the other apps, you can see links and more information about each of the people who speak and the things they speak about. So check it out. Back to Ruby. If people want to learn more about uh, Iwedu, how it's used indigenously in Yoruba land, definitely reach out to him. And... For me as a farmer, I encourage all gardeners to plant and grow this. This is a wild food, and we know that wild food uh, typically contain more phytonutrients, uh, have the ability to take up uh, more minerals uh, from from the soil, and are just much more vigorous. So if you plant this, you will see how vigorous it grows. It's incredible. I planted the seedlings in a pot and they went crazy. <laughs> I mean, they were so healthy, so strong. Um, yeah, definitely encourage you to grow a way due this season. Um, but yeah, that's about it. I hope that um, what I said was informative and you took something out of that thank you so much for letting me talk about one of my favorite plants and uh inspiring my dinner for tonight all right thanks a lot owen thanks a lot chris um love you guys so much thanks thank you so much ruby we love you too so this next interview is a little bit longer. It's with Anand Zar, Palestinian chef, um, who is now a friend of mine. We first met, like with several other people in this interview, through the Free Library of Philadelphia. Uh, the Culinary Literacy Center, and particularly my friend Susanna Erminska, invited me to be a part of Anand's workshop about za'atar, um, where I talked a bit about sumac and which is one of the ingredients in the spice mix and Anan and I became friends and we stayed in touch and she came out to harvest malachia at my farm and she traded seeds with me from a Palestinian strain that she had been growing and um, you know the rest is history and so this interview I a couple weeks ago drove out uh, and met her at her home west of the city and she was gracious enough to share her story and recipes with us. So here you go. Thank you so much for speaking with me and our listeners. Uh, can you say your name and, and explain where we are and who you are? Yes, um, my name is Anan Jardali Zahir, and I live uh, in Glen Mills, PA, which is about 22 miles southwest of Philadelphia. And we came, we've been in this area all, since 1980 because of jobs. My husband used to work in a local company here. 
and I have four children. I am Palestinian. I came to this country at the age of 11, but to California. So the first 12 years in this country, I did live in California. Then I lived in the Middle East for three years, and I've been here since 1980. I actually was a teacher, and not a certified teacher, but I taught privately in the PA Department of Education in a summer program. But I also had a restaurant from 95 to 2001 in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, it was mainly uh, Middle Eastern food, Mediterranean food, uh, which, I mean, I love to cook cook. I'm a great cook and I have four children, so I really had to cook. Great. Can you describe a little more about, or can we start with your earliest memories of Molochia? And can you tell us how you pronounce it? Okay. I pronounce it Molochia. Okay, and this is due to my uh, regional accent of northern Palestine. Uh, some people in the south, in Gaza and in Egypt, they pronounce it Melukhiya. And it's a very, very delicious uh, dish that we prepare. And I make it, I personally still make it once a week in my house. It's prepared differently. Now, I make it different than maybe a village that's only 10 kilometers from where I am in, in Palestine. So it, it even has regional differences in preparation of the actual dish. So how, how well, before we get to the preparation, because I'm very excited to hear how you make it, um, what are your earliest kind of sensory memories in, of, of interacting with this plant and this dish? Oh, my, my earliest one is, and, and we all dreaded it. You know, my mother would buy huge bushels in Luchi, and then we would sit on the floor and we would have to sit for hours taking the leaf off the stem. Okay, and then she would wash it, and then we would put it on. In those days, she dried it. And at the, of course, when we first would uh, prepare it uh, or take the leaves off the stem, she would cook it fresh. And then for the rest of the season, she would dry it and, and store it in muslin bags. And we loved it. And my mother, I, I believe, only made it with chicken, and that's how I make it now. And it's made uh, several ways, but it is it is a dish that most Palestinians and most Arabs love, okay? And it has this uh, consistency of, and, and that's why some people don't like it, especially non-Arabs, because it has a slimy consistency, like okra in a way, but we do things to get rid of that, and not completely. I mean, it's, it will always be there, but it is extremely nutritious and delicious. It, go, it could be eaten like a soup or the way my mother made it, which I do not make that way. She makes it very thick, okay, with chicken, and she takes pita bread and scoops it. So she doesn't even eat it with a spoon or a fork. So she would take the pita bread, and because it's so thick, she scoops the mluchi and the chicken, and that's how she eats it in her mouth. Awesome. And have you always eaten it, even when you moved to California, even when you moved here? And where did you get it? Oh, now, for example, when we moved to California, my mother, our family really missed it because we couldn't find it anywhere. So um, my mom always had a garden, so she grew it. Okay, in California, she grew it. And and then later on, I would say in the last, because of the Arab-American community has grown in this country, so we find it now in Middle Eastern stores, and most of the time it's frozen. So I buy it frozen, and it is from Egypt. Yeah. Okay, wow. And so, but you also continued to grow it yourself for a while. Yes. 
Yes, I grew it for actually at least 10 years here in my backyard garden. And uh, maybe I'll grow it this year again. Uh, but it needs it needs a lot of care. Uh, you know, you have to make sure you get all the weeds. You know, you really have to weed. And uh, it was attacked a few times by some insects. I don't know what kind. And and I don't spray, so I would lose it a lot. And then the minute it gets, Mlukhiyya really loves hot weather. If it's goes down to like 68, 69, we, you know, it turns yellow and that's it. So it, I don't think it's, it's that easy to grow. Also, it, on the East Coast here, it rains a lot. So I'm not sure if Mlokhi likes that much water. I mean, it does. You have to water it. In the Middle East, we water it. But here, the precipitation, the rainfall is so high that the leaf actually looks so much different than if you grow it in California. Here, the leaf gets very big and it's very, very green. Where if you buy it in the Middle East or in California, it the leaf is rougher and it's not as shiny. And and there's a different taste. Yeah. How did the look of uh, the plants in my field and the taste of the plants from my field compare to California and, and the Middle East? Uh, I'll tell you. The, the look is the leaves are bigger. And, of course, you grow it very high. You know, it grows very high. They are more silky. They're softer. You know, it tasted delicious. So I'm not going to say what's grown in California and the Middle East tastes better. It tastes different. Yeah, it has a different taste. And also, like I said, it depends on how you prepare it. You know, I, for example, like it very finely minced. Some people cook it with the the whole leaf. They don't do anything to it. So you get a totally different taste there. And then what garnishes you put, what uh, we we put lemon and maybe some people throw in tomatoes to also get rid of that slimy taste that it has. Um, But Mlukhiyya is delicious, and the fresh mlukhiyya is definitely more delicious than dried and than the frozen. Um, could, could you speak, tell us quickly how you, um, just like an overview of how you prepare it, because so, we've heard from a couple other people on this how they prepare it, so just to compare and contrast. Oh, okay. Uh, first, I like, uh, I make mlukhiyya when it's very finely minced, so I start with that. And I only like to use chicken. So I use, uh, I, I take, let's say, uh, two quarts of water. Well, it doesn't really matter how much, depending on how much chicken you have. I put just salt and pepper. Okay, and I will throw in there uh, like maybe four or six cloves of garlic. And when it boils, I throw the chicken in there. And I cook that for maybe about half an hour when it's almost all cooked almost falling off the bone and I use chicken with the bone because you want to get really nice broth. Then I will uh, uh, throw in the uh, a very fine mlukhiyi, minced mlukhiyi. And I let that um, boil for maybe five minutes. And there's another trick about mlukhiyi is, at least this is what my mother taught me, is that you do not cover the pot. Okay, we just we you, after you put the mlukhi in the broth, you don't cover the pot. Uh, we let that it should take that will take about ten minutes, and then on the side I crush some garlic. Okay, I saute that in um, with a little bit of salt and pepper. I don't use coriander. A lot of people use coriander. I crush the garlic. I saute that, and then I put it on the top of the mlukhi that's still cooking, and let that cook for maybe three, four minutes. And that's really what gives mlukhi its uh, uh, final touch. 
and then I serve it. So I make it not very soupy and not thick so that I, it's like a stew and I serve it with rice. And now some people make it very, very thick and they actually use the pita bread to scoop it. But the way I make it, I make it, I know in Egypt or I've had it at an Egyptian friend, they make it more soupy than I do. I don't make it very soupy, and and that's it. But then I also, after, you have to have uh, lemon. We squeeze lemon on it when we're eating it. And I also make another thing, just crush some more garlic, keep it raw, and mix it with lemon juice and hot pepper, jalapeno or whatever green pepper you like. And that, we always put that right after we serve it in, in our individual plates. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Switching gears a little bit, I would love to hear more about your culinary kind of journey and, you know, having had a Middle Eastern restaurant, a Mediterranean restaurant, what are the most essential ingredients and dishes kind of to your taste of home, so to speak? Um, in uh, Arabic, Middle Eastern, Palestinian, Mediterranean cooking, we use a lot of extra virgin olive oil, okay? Rice, but a uh, hundred years ago, we really did not use rice. We used uh, uh, wheat, something like friki. Uh, we have a lot of stews and we cook, we have a lot of vegetarian dishes, but we do cook with lamb and chicken. It is, we use a lot of garlic, onions, and parsley. Like, for example, I, I don't think I make any dish without uh, onions, you know? And when I saute any kind of meat or even vegetables, I start with onions, with extra virgin olive oil and onions. Uh, we use a lot of beans, for example, chickpeas, which we make the hummus out of. Uh, we use a lot of white beans and stews, a lot of fresh vegetables, lots of eggplants, and the kusa, which is the gray squash. And we core a lot of these vegetables and we stuff them with uh, meat and rice and cook them in a tomato broth. Yeah, the kusa is a basically a zucchini that's very light green colored or gray. Yes. And it's interesting because it's also used a lot in Mexican cooking. Yes, it's used a lot in Mexican cooking. and But the way we use it uh, is much different than the way it's used in Mexican cooking. Uh, uh, we use it, we and we like the small ones. And what we do is we, we core it, we take the inside out, and we save that. We cook that in, uh, separately. And then we stuff it with the spiced uh, meat and the medium grain rice. At least that's how I make it. And we make it in a tomato broth. Awesome. And so, you know, with your restaurant and with your work that I've witnessed at the Free Library with the Culinary Literacy Center, and I'm sure many other instances, you are really kind of carrying the torch for your traditional cuisine. And, and why is that so important to you and to the world right now? Well, you know what? It, it is so important to me. And I like to concentrate on a few dishes that are distinctly Palestinian. And because of basically what's happening to Palestinians, uh, uh, otherwise I would not concentrate so much on uh, just Palestinian food. Because Palestinian food is also very similar to Syrian, uh, Lebanese, and Jordanian. Of course, each region has uh, their own distinct dishes. And um, so I've done actually, uh, after I closed my restaurants, I have done some uh, fundraisers 
uh, like, uh, you know, I invite people for dinner and it's for a specific uh, charity organization, but they get to taste really delicious Palestinian dishes. What I've seen with, specifically Malachia, but with so many of the, the seeds that we carry in the catalog, but none more so than Malachia or Malachie, <laughs> is that kind of spark of recognition and this like quenching of a thirst for this taste of home that has been longed for forever since having to leave in a lot of cases by force and most people don't leave their home because they want to and so being able to reconnect with this food has been so satisfying from what i've witnessed um with malachie and i'm hoping you know as we introduce more middle eastern varieties like the kusa and zatar and so on just to be able to reconnect people with these these tastes of home when they've been disconnected from their homeland. Have you witnessed that as well through your work? Um, uh, yes, of course. I mean, especially about, uh, like I said, the Mluchiyi Kusa, now we can find more in the last 10 years in, in the stores. But Mluchiyi until now is to buy green Mluchiyi is very difficult. I mean, I I would have to drive, and it's only available two months to like uh, northern Jersey where there's a large Palestinian community and there are a few grocery stores that do sell it. Um, but uh, it's... It is. I mean, when you, when most Palestinians I know love mluhiyi. So it does, uh, uh, you know, it's it's almost, eating mluhiyi is almost emotional. You know, if I call people and tell them, which I did uh, a couple of years ago when Owen was growing the green mluhiyi, they just said, are you sure? They got so excited. And and, and, and and you could tell that they were really happy to have, to be able to get green mluhiyi is very rare. <laughs> Yes, your friends who came out, then came out again the following year, and we're going to have them on this interview as well. And they said, if you plant a whole field of this, we will come and we will tell everybody. <laughs> we will buy it. This is so important to us. <laughs> and they bring it home and they have their kids pluck the leaves like you did and like they did when they were kids back home. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is it? I don't know how to, if it makes sense to bring in, it would be cool to like talk about the social kind of political aspects of this being that it's a food a diasporic food that you know why is there a diaspora you know why why is it that so many people have had to leave you know this it's it was nice about talking about these specific foods is it's like the the hope you know it's the ways that people have stayed connected to their homelands but it's often harder to talk about why did people have to leave you know and so i don't know if there's any kind of closing thoughts you have on that I like to be able to offer the literal seeds of these very important foods to people who have been disconnected from from where they come from. And a lot of times it's hard to talk about why why is that disconnect there. Um, so how do you kind of deal with that? You also work in the hope side, you know, the food side, the, the side where people are staying connected to their culture despite being halfway across the world from where they're from. How, how do you think about that? Um, since I am Palestinian, I will talk about most Palestinians who came to this country came after the 1967 war uh, when Israel occupied the rest of Palestine. 
And by the way, Israel has been in existence only 71 years, and that's really not such a long time. Basically, in 1948, about 700,000 Palestinians were displaced. Uh, they were expelled. They were terrorized. They uh, fled just because they have they had children to take care of their family. They were kicked out. And what's the most important thing about all of this is when there is a war, People will go to a safe place uh, to guard their children, but then they're able to come back. But the Palestinians have not been able to come back. On the contrary, if some tried to uh, to return from the borders, uh, they would be either imprisoned or or shot or, or just thrown back into whatever uh, uh, country that they are refugees in. So for me... Uh, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you have been listening a lot to the news lately. Actually, the issue of, of Palestine is coming up now in the American uh, run for president. You know, I mean, it was never mentioned before, okay, because... It's when you think about it, it's really also a human rights issue. You know, a lot of people don't know that basically when the state of Israel was established, they let's take Jaffa. Jaffa was a very beautiful Palestinian cities. It had hospitals, it had theaters, it had culture. I mean, basically the people were kicked out and another set of people were just put in their place. And, you know, uh, why, why should the indigenous people of that land, okay, who have uh, lived there for centuries, become refugees because another group of people that was a, basically brought the majority of them from Europe to take their homes. So... For me, in my work right now, and and I am retired, but I like to uh, uh, work a lot around food. So I'm always uh, like to say, this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, because we don't want, we feel that Basically, the occupation, the Israeli occupation of our land is Palestine, is trying to make us disappear. So we try many different ways in saying, hey, we've always been there and we are alive. Beautiful. Thank you. No, absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for your work, because just the simple act of cooking these dishes, you just put the perfect context for it. It's it's so much deeper than the how delicious it is. It's about so much more. So thank you for that. So follow me on Instagram, Ananzar at Instagram. That's it. Can you spell it for people? A-N-A-N-Z-A-H-R. And you will see a lot of the dishes that I prepare, some recipes. And the whole idea of me having an Instagram account is to inspire you to cook the dishes that I post. <laughs> and it is very inspiring and beautiful. So thank you so much again. You're welcome. You're welcome, Owen. Thank you for everything that you do. Now we'll hear from one of Anand's friends, Hoda Mansour and her daughter Noor. Uh, Hoda and Noor and Noor's younger brother visited the farm this summer just like they did the year before 
to harvest Malachia, and they took the time to tell us a little bit about their relationship to it. Um, the first time I recorded, I didn't have the mic on, <laughs> and so they were kind enough to do a second interview. Um, thank you so much. Here they are. Hello, is this been on? Is this? I told you, is this been on? Does it talk? Hello? It's very loud. Try a little quieter. <laughs> okay, here, I'm going to do questions really quick. Okay, sorry to make you do this twice. <laughs> Can you uh, say your name and, and why you came to the farm today? Sure, my name is Hore Mansour. I came to the farm to get um, our favorite mluchie, uh, a very uh, enjoyable and a staple dish in our household. Awesome. Um, and we just spent time, the four of us out there, harvesting. Um, so I, you said last year that you har when, what you harvested lasted all year. Can you talk a little bit about what you're going to do when you go home and how to make it last? Sure. So when we go home, we're going to, um, all of us together, are going to sit down and myself and the kids are going to sit down and pluck the leaves. Um, I'm going to f uh, flash rinse it because they're very clean. So it doesn't need that much rinsing. Um, and then I'm going to portion it and then put it in Ziploc bags and, um, and freeze it and it'll be just as fresh when I cook it and it'll probably last me about a year so I'll probably make about now with the amount that I have about 20 bags which I'm so excited about mm -hmm. <laughs> great and I know that you're gonna you cook it in several ways in a couple main ways can you talk a little bit sure. about those so you can make it vegetarian you can make it with chicken with lamb with beef uh, you can make it as a stew um, or with just uh, olive oil um, some people um, make it as a whole leaf and you eat it with, um, you know, with a fork, with, with bread, pita bread, any kind of bread, or you mince it. And I usually like to mince it when it's um, frozen. It's just easy for me. I don't know why. Um, you mince it and then it'll be like a soup. Uh, and my daughter will tell you more about it. It's her favorite. Uh, nice slimy soup that just goes right down. <laughs> and you serve it with rice. Some people like to serve it with rice or you just drink, eat it as is. And can you describe your first memories with, with this plant? Sure. I remember uh, plucking the leaves uh, with my uh, grandma. I remember it being a tedious work and having, like, I just remember saying, no, I don't want to do it. It's so boring. But now I look back and I... Just say, I, I wish I savored every moment of it because it was really quite the memory. Um, my sisters and I were just like drinking tea, talking, and you know, and we would have a lot more than this. <laughs> but yeah, it was the, like a, a family event. Where did it come from? Who grew it? Um, so it would just like back in, in Lebanon, it was just from the farms around us. Yeah, and it would just come home like that. Can you say your name and your age? I'm Noor, and I'm 13 years old. Can I ask you to, your mom mentioned your favorite dish. Can you talk about your favorite way to eat this and the, your, your earliest memories? I gotta say um, something. When I was... I when I was really young, when I was really young, my, my mom used to like, you know, make it as like almost a stew or a soup. So that way, you know, little baby me could just swallow it, swallow it like really easily, because obviously I didn't have teeth, so I couldn't chew on the chicken or the lamb. So I had to, 
either as a stew as like a stew or like I don't know it's a very slimy like consistency and um, that was probably my earliest memory like when I was like one or two years old and um, can you talk a little bit like we did before about kind of carrying these traditions forward and what role you want to play in that um, I definitely want to grow a bunch of these plants. I want to grow makhaya and I want to keep the tradition alive. So that obviously starts with me sitting down watching my mom and every step of the way asking her, how does this happen? How do you make this? What's like this? What's the spice that you put into this? And just hopefully, you know, catching on and learning how to make it for my future kids, if I even have any, but I want to definitely grow for, like me, I want to learn how to make makhiyya. Awesome. And then finally, um, a little bit about the pronunciation um, and, and the different ways your, your family pronounces it and why. Uh, one side of my family says mulakhiyya and the other side of my family usually says mukhiya and I say mukhiya. I don't pronounce the L and my mom pronounces the L and you can say it, uh, I don't know, there's like a bunch. There's like mulukhiya, there's mulukhiya, there's a lot. There's like from different parts of the Middle East and honestly everywhere. It's just, it depends like, like honestly how you how you hear where you're from, stuff like that. And where are, you, where are your parents from? My mom's from Lebanon, or she grew up in Lebanon, but she's... Her family's from Palestine, and so is my dad. Awesome. Thank you all so much for being a part of this. <laughs> Thank you for doing what you're doing and preserving the fruits and vegetables and passing it on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We love you. <laughs> Thank you so much. This next interview is with Mason from Bear Bottom Farm in Virginia. I first did this interview with him over Skype um, in order to write a magazine article for what is now called Mother Earth Gardener about Malachia. So check that out. I also interviewed several other people for that. Mason and Wiley at Bear Bottom Farm grow many crops, including lots of seeds for our True Love Seeds catalog. And so in this episode, we're going to particularly focus on, of course, Malachia and Mason's connection to this plant through his Syrian grandfather and the ways they've carried that legacy forward. Uh, we'll hear about how they grow it, how they eat it, how they seed seeds for it. And um, if you want to be part of that legacy, check out the True Love Seeds catalog, Francois Syrian Malachia. So here's Mason. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to hear your story again and to record it for posterity. <laughs> um, so who are you and where are you? Um, my name is Mason Hartcrater and I live in Buckingham County in Central Virginia. Awesome. And, what, and tell us just a little bit about your farm. We have a a pretty diversified farm. Uh, we raise a herd of hogs. Uh, it's kind of like a cow-calf operation, but hogs instead of cows. We sell feeder piglets and hog shares. Uh, we do some seed work. We grow dry corn for milling 
and sweet sorghum for molasses. And we farm with a team of mules and we do some logging as well. Amazing. Um, I would love to just jump into the seed story and then hear more, get more of the context of your work from that. Um, so you grow a lot of seeds for the True Love Seed Catalog. Um, and But the one that kind of is the most potent story in my mind is the one that comes from your own family, the Syrian Malukia. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to start growing that and what the background is to that seed story. So the, the Malahe is, is actually very special to me. And um, I was really happy that you were interested in it when we first started talking about growing seeds because I had talked to some other people trying to sell the seed and um, it just wasn't really striking uh, with other people the way it did with you. Um, so that, that was really important for me. Um, but so the Malahea is, it's a food I grew up eating and it was, you know, my connection to my Middle Eastern heritage was mostly through food and, um, you know, a little bit family culture wise, but mainly food. And that was a really big one for me. Um, and my grandpa grew it, uh, all growing up. I remember being little and going out to his garden plot and seeing just a whole bunch of Malahea just growing there and we would pick it. And my mom telling us stories about picking it when she was little, you know, always eating it. That plant was always involved in a lot of family stories. And so, yeah, as I guess, as I got older, I kind of honestly forgot about it for a while. And uh, <laughs> it didn't really, it didn't really come to mind um, until I started living here on the farm. And um, my brother was cleaning out my grandpa's freezer one day and was just, hey, you want this bag of molehea seeds? I found it in grandpa's freezer. I don't know how long it's been there. And I was like, oh, sure. I was like, I'll take that. And so I, you know, I talked to my grandpa who was still alive at the time. And I was like, when do you plant this? And he told me a little bit of things about it and figured out when to plant it and how to grow it. And it grows like a weed. So <laughs> it was pretty easy. It was pretty easy to start cultivating it. I want to hear a lot about all those things, like um, who your grandfather was, how he got here, how he held on to the seeds. And also, what does that mean? It grows like a weed. So all yeah. of the above. Okay. <laughs> So I guess a little bit about my grandpa. Um, we were pretty close when I was growing up. Um, we just, I was pretty close with my mom's side of the family. He was a chemist and he was born in Cairo. Um, his dad had come from Aleppo when he was a 20 year old and settled in Cairo because of religious persecution. They were Christians or Catholics rather. Honestly, how my grandpa got the seed is a little bit of a mystery to me and a little bit of a mystery to my family. I asked my mom, and I wasn't able to ask him before he died, unfortunately. My mom thinks that the seed was sent to him by an uncle after he moved here. Uh, I'm here being the United States. Um, and they moved, this year was the 50th anniversary of their move, July 1st. So I got to do some math to figure that out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so he was a textile chemist, and he was a textile chemist in uh, in Cairo. He had his own business, and when he uh, immigrated here, he just you know restarted his textile business, and he has uh, eight U.S. patents for textiles, mostly um, fire retardant materials and ways to kind of make uh, industrial material cheaper to produce and also very durable. So, you know, just some very useful things. He was very, like, straightforward kind of guy. No fluff. 
uh, very tough, very smart. Um, also, also caring in his own way. So I guess a little bit about the Malahea as far as, uh, you know, it growing like a weed. Oh, go ahead. I just want to, can you say, say what his name was? Oh, Francois Moussali. Cool. And also, um, I'd love to hear like what he thought of you, you all growing his seed. He didn't give a hoot. <laughs> he wouldn't, I took it to him. I took it to him. He was my mom, my mom, maybe this is, Maybe you don't want to put this on your podcast or whatever, but um, he was always very like gruff. He was never very like loving, and he was he, he. I know he loved us, but he was never very loving and friendly. And my mom, later on in his life, as my mom started to be the one to take care of him um, and spend literally all of her free time with him and providing him all of his care, uh, she was sort of starting to be convinced that he was maybe had Asperger's or some kind of, you know, he, he wasn't like neurotypical in the way that he interacted with other people. And he definitely didn't know how to show any kind of affection or pick up on social cues like that. And I remember I was very, my mom was very excited that we were growing it. And, you know, he would ask about it and stuff, but I, I took him some when he was in the nursing home and he wouldn't even eat it. <laughs> but, you know, I, and I don't, I don't like, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I, I don't care. But it's just like, I thought it was pretty funny. And it was my brother who was like, oh, we have to take grandpa some of his small hair. We have to take it to him. It's going to be so important. And I was like, whatever. He does not going to care. He's old. And then we did. And I was like, see, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it's more for me uh, and you know other members of my family that I think it's important that I'm growing it. And it, it, it does a lot. It does a lot for me to grow it. I mean, I never necessarily did it for him. So, well, what does it do for you and your mother and your brother? It definitely. I mean, it's a very special plant to me because I held on to that Middle Eastern culture um, through food mostly. So that's like a very concrete way to be like, I have this thing that I plant every year that literally grew my family. So that's kind of nice, and it's it's funny because like the, you talk about it. You know, people always ask you what you grow when you say you grow seeds for someone. And that's the one thing that people are like, what? What's molahea? And you're like, well, uh, it's like a slimy soup green. And they're like, ew. <laughs> yeah, I, <clears throat> you, you may have seen, I, there's people that come to my farm to harvest it, uh, mostly Palestinians. Um, and they talk about it like that slimy soup green but in a loving adoring way oh yeah they're like it's a it's just slimy and it goes right down my throat and you know yeah. <laughs> in a way that makes it sound delicious when they talk about it like with the tone of their voice but yeah it's not what a, a lot of other people i know would find appealing sounding i know i think it's on the same line as like okra and things like that where people are like oh i can't handle the sliminess and i'm like that's what i love about it so Totally, me too. I think it's just the taste thing or what you're used to. And my aunt said that um, she's actually my grandpa's niece. So I don't really know what that makes her to me. Uh, but her name is Mira. And she said that she would feed, every time her son would bring home uh, dates or whatever, she would feed them all hay to make sure that they were going to get along with the family. She was like, if you can't get this down, you can't hang around here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But I think that's pretty funny. 
Um, how would she prepare or how would you prepare it? I prepare it the same way my family does. And I have, there are lots of ways to prepare it, um, but I've never explored any of them, but this one way, which is um, I take onions and garlic chopped in a pan, uh, a little bit of olive oil and a spoonful of lard, just whatever nice fat you want. Uh, really, I would not coconut oil or anything like that. Um, stuff is gross, but um, <laughs> it, it gives the wrong flavor for the dish. But so I take um, five cardamom pods, and I'm talking a whole onion, you know, half a bulb of garlic, you know, and a good amount of grease. And yeah, so and then I uh, take cumin, five cardamom pods. A little bit of hot pepper, whatever you, whatever kind of hot pepper you like, and I just take that and put it in the pan, and I um, just saute the onions in that, and kind of turn the heat down really low so it, the onions really caramelize and let go a lot of their liquid, and you make kind of like a weird paste, and you add some salt and pepper, and then take the molhaya leaves and you take them off the stem, and you uh, chop them extremely finely because uh, they they do get like a mucilaginous layer on top when you cook them. So if you leave them whole, uh, it's just a little bit too much to try to chew and swallow. So chop them real, real fine. And then you go on and add that to the pan and you kind of just stir it all around. Um, so the leaves start to cook, but don't, don't roast them. And then um, I like to use chicken stock and um, I just take a big quart of chicken stock and pour it over that pan of greens and, onion paste and just stir it really gently and let it let it gently cook don't don't boil it and then um then i you know i'll add a little bit of lemon juice at that point um but mainly the lemon juice you add after but yeah so i let that sit on low heat and then i've already cooked a pot of rice and so the way we eat it is just take a big spoonful of rice into your bowl and then take a big ladle full of the mulhaya mixture and you pour that on there I usually pick the cardamom pods out after they're in my bowl. I don't bother fishing for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you add a little lemon juice and salt on top. It kind of, the acidity cuts the sliminess and uh, makes it really nice. I know Greek people serve it with chicken on top, um, and I've heard lamb too. And there's so many different ways to cook it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, that's what we do. That sounds delicious. It is so good. And you can make it vegan too by... Um, use some vegetable broth or whatever. So it's a pretty easy dish to make vegetarian. Um, would you have it vegetarian ever growing up? Like maybe during Lent or something? No, mm -hmm. no, never. I was raised fairly Catholic. We didn't observe things like not eating meat on Fridays. You know, we did at school, but not at home. I know my grandpa probably did. He was a lot stricter than we were, um, but I don't remember ever doing it like that. Um, how about the growing of Malachia? Um, what would you, what's the process from seed to seed? So do, you need to do whatever kind of tillage you're going to do on your soil. You always direct seed it. There's no reason to transplant except for seed keeping in a cooler climate, but we'll get to that at the end. Um, it's really important the soil is there, like the same temperature you would want to plant okra. So 60 degrees plus when you plant these seeds. So I, I say for here, June 1st is good. Um, just let the soil warm up and don't put any mulch or anything on them when you first sow them because um, it'll keep the soil too cold. I just like to prep my patch, however, a four by eight bed or whatever you're going to do, and just go on and sprinkle the seeds. Um, 
you know, evenly and take a rake and cover it up with soil. You don't have to, you know, they're, they're tiny little seeds. You don't have to really dig them down or anything like that. And um, in a few days, they'll start to come up. It's germination is usually like three to five days when the temperatures are right. And you can give them a little water when you refresh sow them, but you don't need to soak them even. Yeah, and then as far as, you know, keep, keeping them weeded is not very hard because they, they come up so fast, they make a nice carpet. Um, and as far as harvesting, you can really start to harvest as soon as there's leaves. Like at any stage in the plant, you can start to harvest it. Um, yeah, it's as simple as that. The, the leaves freeze really well. I like to chop them before I freeze them and just freeze them in bags. My grandpa would um, freeze them in chicken stock. Uh, to make them more convenient in a plastic bag. And then he would just take the mulhea out. It would just look like a big old, just big old block. And he would just thaw it in a pan. And then it would be dinner in five minutes. Can I ask a harvest question? Sure. Because it's a new plant to me in the last like five years. Yeah. Um, and I'm always trying to get seed from it also. So yeah. I end up taking the top foot or two, like a branch. I mean, yeah. for me, it gets like taller than me. Because oh, yeah. Um, and so when people come to harvest, I cut a couple feet off the top, like above the seed pods for them. And it, is that normal or do you normally keep the plants shorter because you're harvesting constantly? My grandpa would harvest constantly, um, because he had four children that he could just send out to harvest this plant that grows so quickly. Um, so he, his plants would always be very short. And what I do is I just have separate plants that I'm saving for seed because honestly, I, I always struggle to get plants to viable seed in this climate, which, you know, it gets very hot here, but still it's not, you know, it's not Egypt. Yeah. Even with the June 1st planting, sometimes I don't get seed in the fall. So what I've been doing now is starting whatever, 20 plants in cells and then transplanting those out June 1st. So they have a head start. And that's what I usually end up saving seed from. And even last year I had to cover with row cover several times and covering an eight foot tall plant with row cover is not fun. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just, you know, that's just like insurance because a lot of times the eating crop will go to seed, but every year is different for us. And, you know, last year we had a 28 degree night, October 22nd. So that's not... (laughs) That doesn't work for seed. Right. But you will, does, does the way I'm describing how I harvest, does that sound legit? As far as being able to harvest and still getting seeds in the same plant? Or even just like, is that, like, I imagine if you keep them short, you have more tender leaves or something. I mean, the top foot, top, top couple feet look like nice quality leaves and people are very happy with it. As long as the leaves are tender, because I mean, the leaves on the bottom definitely get Japanese beetle damage and definitely can get very tough. And then they just don't cook down to be very good to eat. Yeah, as long as the leaves are tender and don't have a lot of bug damage, it doesn't really matter where on the plant you're harvesting from. That's true. I only The only damage I do see on our crop is Japanese beetles. It, they love it. It's funny because they love the okra too. I mean, I love those things. <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> Okay, so how do you, um, can you talk us through the seed saving? Yes. The mulhay gets very tall. Uh, Ours usually gets to be about six to eight feet, and it'll have little yellow flowers and send up um, clusters of seed pods that are long and look kind of like a mini cucumber, for lack of better words. So those are going to be ready when they start to turn dark brown and get dry. 
And so what I like to do is I like to have them dry on the plant, but that's not always possible. Um, when they do dry on the plant, I just go through and I cut all the seed pods off into a big basket. And the pods very readily shatter when you put pressure on them. So I'll usually just take a big sheet or another big basket or something like that, and I'll just just gently squeeze the pods in my hands. And they're, they kind of peel like a banana where there's little sections, and each little section will have these beautiful emerald seeds just completely filling it. And that's how you know that the seeds are ready and are going to be viable for next year as they've reached that color. And any seeds that are brown or like, not just the most beautiful emerald you've ever seen, just go ahead and pitch because they're not going to germinate. I've done some germination tests on some ones that were lighter green and some ones that were brown. And I just, you know, some of them did sprout, but I wasn't getting the, a good number. Um, so yeah, as long as you're looking, getting that consistent green color, you should be fine. And you know, yeah, store it in a jar. And if you can put a little silica packet in there and the freezer is good, but you know, also just on the shelf is fine too. They seem like pretty hardy seeds to me. Nice. Yeah. Someone just asked on Instagram how long they store. I, I think you saw that actually. Yeah. And um, I, I definitely have germinated eight-year-old seed from a, a, an Egyptian family in Maryland successfully. Yeah. So they do store quite a long time. I also, um, I do have like a small backup amount that I do keep in the freezer, but our freezer space is kind of precious. So, you know, I, I store mine outside of the freezer. And I'm still plant like I'll just work on a jar. I'm still planting seed from 2015. That's what I planted this year. Um, and I had great germination. So, yeah, I think it is pretty tough. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to say about Malachia? Oh, I guess I do have one thing, one more thing about the Malachia. Great. Um, it's a really common fiber plant. And I think that that is, I think that's what, people mainly grow it for in a lot of places. And I think the food aspect of it is just a nice bonus, but um, I think it's used like hemp in a lot of places for cordage and rope and fabric. So I think that, you know, it's, it's really versatile and it's very, very low maintenance, very pest resistant, very disease resistant, and very, very hardy. So it's like, you know, it's a good solid food. You don't have to baby it too much. And that's, you know, that's always nice to have a crop like that. You know you're gonna, you know, you know you're gonna eat. Totally, I actually that reminds me of your comment that it grows like a weed. Um, does yours self seed from dropped seed ever? Um, yes, it does. But the way that we cultivate, um, because we do use traditional tillage methods, I, you know, sometimes I'll leave a few plants here and there uh, as far as weeding goes. But I like to have a good rotation. I don't like to you know, let the same thing grow in the same place every couple, you know, year after year. And you till with animals. That's always, mm -hmm. that's how you always till. Yeah, exclusively. We've been trying to do a biannual plowing system. So last year we plowed the whole field. And then this year we just dissed, just to try something new, honestly. Um, the plowing actually works really well for us. I think it's improved our soil a lot. We had red, very hard red clay to start with. And now it looks like chocolate cake, so it has made a big difference. And I think the animals, having the animals in the field, a hundred percent reduces reduces compaction. Because even with a small BCS or something like that, you can't compare it to just having, you know, little mule feet in there. Um, they just they really just don't do much damage to the soil. They will eat your corn tops though. 
<laughs> Pluses and minuses. Yeah. Downsides <laughs> to everything. Yeah. Um, there it's just so beautiful. I love watching your the photos of your animals and you all on the farm. It looks like an awesome ecosystem. I love them. There's they can be a pain in the butt sometimes, I'll tell you, but I, when they're good, I love working with them. It makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to just be able to recognize that there is a way to continue farming without fossil fuels. Oh, this makes sense. I didn't use a drop of gas to do this. And like this can, you know, I can still keep doing this thing that I love when there is no more gas, which will be in our lifetime. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, real quick, I'd love to hear anything you want to say about growing other Syrian crops that are newer to you and your family and like what that experience is like. Because um, I, I know that I've sent you several varieties that are connected to Syria. I've enjoyed growing everything you've sent me, um, you know, even more than the crops being directly from Syria, you know, just by virtue of them being grown in the Middle East at some point, it means they're pretty drought tolerant and pretty hardy. And that's always, you know, I always appreciate growing crops like that and like a changing climate where you don't know, you don't know what one May is going to look like compared to another one. And it's nice to just be, you know, saving those seeds for crops that can really handle, uh, really handle some drought and really handle some uh, abuse from the, from the weather. So that, you know, that feels really good. And it feels good to be hanging on to seeds that um, other people could I figure out how to say this. You know, I, I get to live in a, a stable living situation. I get to keep these seeds for people that are being displaced and not being able to have a stable living situation. And I can um, save them for them to be able to come and get at some point when things settle down, if they ever do. I know that doesn't probably sound very good, <laughs> but... <laughs> I can think about how to make that sound better. No, that sounds perfect. I mean, I think that's that's a big part of why I try to hold on to these seeds as well. Is there there are constantly people in the diaspora being displaced, refugees, immigrants, you know, or for whatever reason disconnected from their culture. Um, and just like you said in the beginning, food is often a way to hold on to that or have a sense sense of home. Um, through this one small act of growing and eating traditional foods. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, I mean, that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing for, well, for, I guess that's a huge thing for a lot of people I know is just to be able to, like, eat what they're used to eating and not just have to kind of force-fed things that are just not, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, they don't resonate with them. And they, they, can't, they can't find familiarity with, you know, just regular American food or whatever. Right, and it's interesting, too, just to, switch gears because um, you're you're also growing and preserving a lot of traditional Appalachian crops and it's a whole different thing because you're living there and the and the culture is still you know vibrant there but I'm wondering you know even to the point where you are you know making your own molasses from sorghum that you grow um, so I'm wondering if you could speak at all to what that what that is like for you and what what your interest is in that well you know, my mom was born in Cairo and their whole family is Syrian, but my dad was born in Southwest Virginia. Um, when I say Southwest Virginia, I mean uh, Southwestern Virginia. So uh, Christiansburg, Pulaski, Rural Retreat is where my grandparents are buried on my dad's side. Um, and they were, my dad's grandparents were hog farmers. 
um, and they ran a restaurant delivery business. Um, you know, so that is part that Appalachian food and traditions are also part of my family in the same way that the Syrian crops are also part of my family. So I like to have, you know, I like to have both of those things represented in what I'm growing and what I'm doing. And honestly, I love both of them so much. Um, not necessarily my parents, but both of those uh, traditions of growing things. <laughs> and there's just so much to be, I, there's so much to learn about both sides of that. And um, I get the privilege of living here um, in a climate where I can grow Syrian crops. And, um, you know, a lot of things, you know, a lot of uh, things have been grown in Virginia for a long time. So I like to, yeah, I like, I like to, I like to do both of those things. Awesome. Can you just, um, tell us what briefly what the process is for making your own molasses sure um so it's a the plant is uh sorghum a sweet sorghum and there's a bunch of different it breaks my heart to do this but i'm going to cut it off here there's seven or eight great minutes of sorghum talk specifically how to make molasses using their sorghum and their mules and a press and I'm going to try to save it for a future episode about sorghum. I also had to cut some really great stuff from Anand's interview about za'atar, about growing up working in the tomato fields of California alongside migrant workers and I'm just going to have to save some of this stuff for other episodes. So stay tuned. Back to Mason. Cool. Well, this is was epic. And I really appreciate <laughs> you taking time out of your busy farm day to do this. Okay, I'm waiting for the dew to burn off the hay. Nice. Okay, great. I'm glad to help. Thank you so much to all of the people who took the time to share their stories with us for this episode and share their love for this plant. It is a very lovable plant, as you should know at this point in the episode, and we are so grateful for all of these friends, including our friend Malokia. Thanks for listening to another episode of Seeds and Their People. Please subscribe and comment and stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks. Or three, maybe. As always, this show is sponsored by True Love Seeds. When you order our seeds, 50% of each sale goes back to the amazing farmer that grew it. Remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future.